Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Welcome to The Diplomat, brought to you by Newsweek. I'm your host, Jason Greenblatt. With tensions rising across the world, Diplomacy is needed perhaps now more than ever. During my time as former White House Middle East envoy and as one of the chief architects of peace between Israel and its Arab neighbors, I've had the chance to witness the power of diplomacy firsthand, and today, I would like to share that perspective with you. Shalom, salam, and welcome to The Diplomat. Hi, this is Jason Greenblatt on The Diplomat, brought to you by Newsweek. Today, we have as our guest Mohammed Aliyaya. Mohammed is a senior fellow at the Hudson Institute and a fellow at the Harvard Belfer Center. We discuss today's Saudi Arabia and Iran and lots more. I hope you enjoy the episode. Hope you find it fascinating. Again, I'm Jason Greenblatt. This is The Diplomat, brought to you by Newsweek. Mohammed Aliyaya, thank you so much for joining me. Really appreciate it. Welcome to The Diplomat. Thank you for having me. Let's start with The Economist. The Economist recently had a cover art photo and an Instagram post of the Crown Prince, Mohammed bin Salman. Uh, it was his back with uh, Shamag, the Arab traditional headdress, and attached to the ogal, to the, to the black braid around the traditional headdress, was a fuse. Um, my take on it? disgusting, you know, what are they trying to say? The headline, by the way, was Meet Mohammed bin Salman, the millennial autocrat who controls our oil. What do you think their message was? I think the post was taken down, if I'm not mistaken, maybe because of your efforts, I'm not sure. What, what's that about? I, I don't know if it's because of my efforts, I doubt it. But, uh, I mean, you're absolutely correct, and, and you should be outraged, I think. Everyone should be outraged at uh, that artwork that was used with the article. It was uh, racist, um, and it, uh, uh, you know, that type of racism belongs in a bygone era. Now, that shouldn't distract from the fact that the article itself was a deeply racist article that was based on hearsay, that refused to give Saudi Arabia credit for the many reforms that have happened in the country, but that's something, as you mentioned, that is a theme uh, in coverage of Saudi Arabia. And this has been happening, you know, since the 1940s and the 1950s. Saudi Arabia is a deeply misunderstood place in the Western press. You know, a, a lot of friends who I speak to uh, abroad who have a very uh, negative view of Saudi Arabia. You know, I, I can't really blame them because if, if your exposure to Saudi Arabia is all of these articles that in many cases are racist and in almost all cases are, are deeply unfair, you know, what, what other idea of Saudi Arabia would you have? And almost as a rule, anybody who does visit Saudi Arabia realizes that the place that they went to uh, is a totally different place than what's described uh, in, in, in the mainstream media that you see uh, in Europe, but also the United States, more so in the United States. So I have that same experience. You know, I, I'll, I wasn't at all familiar with Saudi Arabia before 2017 when I joined the White House. How I was familiar with it was related to press that I read almost entirely negative. 
now I consider it a home the way I do all countries in the Middle East that I was privileged to uh, visit and work with and know the leadership of. But I still face it when I do my interviews, and much like Israel, by the way, the press seems to be very negative on Saudi Arabia, uh, negative on Israel, sometimes for similar reasons when they fight terrorists, in other cases for other reasons. Um, it seems to be dismissive of Saudi Arabia. And I'm trying to figure out, at least with respect to Saudi Arabia, because that's the topic you can speak to, why do you think that is? Is, is it just an inherent bias that can't seem to be um, to disappear? Are people closed-minded? What's going on? And that's a good question. I think, you know, this can be the topic of a very long discussion. But I think one element that does exist is, you know, and, and this is more prevalent, I think, among people on the left, um, people who harbor, uh, you know, negative views on Islam uh, or, or, or even Islamophobia um, find that using Saudi Arabia as a punching bag allows them to do that in a way that is politically correct. Um, and also, you know, politics are, are, are at play. People on the left tend to resent uh, Saudi Arabia. Uh, Saudi Arabia is, is not an anti-imperialist uh, power like uh, Iran or, or, or um, uh, Bashar al-Assad's regime. Uh, among a lot of people on the left, you know, the idea that, that posture that, that these regimes take is something that resonates uh, with them ideologically. Saudi Arabia has been a proud uh, a partner of the United States, has benefited immensely from its partnership with the United States and has acted as a pillar for uh, America, America's regional security order. Um, you know, all of these things together uh, really put Saudi Arabia uh, in, a, in, a, in a bizarre spot in terms of the way that it's covered. Uh, but also, you know, one shouldn't absolve uh, the Saudis of... of um, uh, you know, uh, uh, their mistake, uh, which is which is not being able to tell their story correctly. For the longest time, they, they uh, you know, it was very difficult to, to, to uh, you know, see Saudi officials making the case for Saudi Arabia. Not many people, the country wasn't open uh, uh, for, for people to visit. Uh, you know, tourists weren't allowed into the country. All of that is changing now. Uh, and I, I think slowly uh, these perceptions of Saudi Arabia might change. I think that's an important point. I mean, one of the things that I find so interesting, the disconnect between the media and people. So when I travel to the kingdom with people or when people come back from the kingdom, whether they went for business or pleasure, everybody has a totally different reaction than, than from what they read in the press. The reaction is much more closely aligned with my experience, which has only grown since 2017. In 2017, I'll admit, I was a little nervous. I showed up. Didn't know anything, didn't know anybody. It was a Friday. It was a very, very quiet day. It was just the day in advance before President Trump flew in. Um, but now I could walk around, enjoy it. There's so many cool things to see, some beautiful things. People are very friendly. But I think you're right. I think now that the kingdom has opened up and people can see it for their own eyes, uh, hopefully things will change and more of the truth about today's Saudi Arabia will, will come out. So speaking of today's Saudi Arabia, you had written an article recently in the last several months in Tablet Magazine. The title of the article was The Politics of Truth in the Middle East, the Young and the Restless. Uh, for those of my listeners who didn't read it, I'd encourage them to read it because I think it'll give people a glimpse into today's Saudi Arabia, where the young generation uh, is, where their hearts are, where the crown prince sees uh, them going. Tell me about the article. Why did you write it and how would you sum it up? Yeah, so, so the reason I wrote it is because, you know, uh, 
I had this thought. I was actually on the train going from New York back to Boston. Um, and I was trying to think about, you know, how the Iranian regime uh, and Saudi Arabia fundamentally differ in the way that they approach uh, everything, right? And and the thesis for the article is that, you know, in Iran, you've got uh, a geriatric ruling class that is, um, uh, you know, utilizes, empowers, exploits, backwards, reactionary, anti-Western Islamism in order to crush the aspirations of young people in the country that are not necessarily at odds with the West, uh, at least no longer today, perhaps maybe during the time of the Iranian revolution, things were different. Um, while in Saudi Arabia, you've got the exact opposite dynamic. You've got a leadership that is drawing on the energy and the aspirations of young people in order to crack down on that very brand of backwards reactionary Islamism that has posed a threat to the Saudi state for a while, uh, especially since uh, you know the Saudis consider the strategic relationship with the United States and Europe to be central to the national security. Um, so you've got you've got two two uh, totally opposite uh, approaches. And the idea is which one is more aligned with uh, the demographic realities of the Middle East going forward. You know, unlike uh, many European countries, unlike Japan, uh, the the Middle East is just like everywhere else in the world. There's a large youth bulge. There's uh, two thirds of Saudis are under thirty years of age. So the future really belongs to these countries and the decisions that they make. Uh, on how to deal with young people and how to invest in young people is going to chart uh, 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 out, uh, you know, how history will unfold over the next uh, several uh, decades, several dozen decades. Um, so, so I mean, what I was trying to do is put into perspective, you know, these two differing models. Um, and the idea is uh, that I, I don't think the Iranian regime even has the ability to change its course, it's raison d'etre is to to fight the United States and fight uh, the West, and they expand across the region. Uh, any chance that the regime can reform itself is extremely slim. Whereas in Saudi Arabia, that reformation has happened at breakneck speed, uh, and and you know social life in the, in, the, in the country that was you know severely constricted in the past now doesn't resemble what it was five years ago. It's almost like a different country. So you mentioned Iran. Uh, there's so much to talk about in terms of Iran. Why don't we start with what do you think the region, Saudi Arabia in particular, but the region is, um, think about the Iranian regime and what I would call its threat to the region? Right. Um, of course, I mean, the Iranian regime uh, you know, cultivates almost 100 Shia militias in Iraq that contribute to the destabilization of that country. Uh, they're active in Syria. Uh, uh, they are uh, the main problem in Lebanon and Yemen. All of these things uh, are, are, you know, concerns for regional actors, you know, including Israel. In the United States, the focus on the nuclear uh, uh, aspect is, is perhaps understood because the United States isn't in proximity of Iran's uh, uh, proxies. Uh, U.S. troops certainly do, do get targeted by Iranian proxies. That happens, you know, even today. Uh, but but the region is far away from the minds of the average American, I think. In the region, uh, you know, state failure is a huge uh, threat to to the stable states uh, in the Gulf and, and, and elsewhere. And state failure is is the, the is 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 necessary for the Iranian regime 
uh, to to you know execute its foreign policy. They need a weak state in in uh, Iraq, a weak state in Lebanon, a weak state uh, in Syria and in Yemen. That's the model that they use in order to to spread uh, across the region. But you know an important point here is that you know while many professors you'll find. Uh, in American universities might think that the Arab street by and large is fundamentally anti-American or anti-Western. I think that reality has changed fundamentally in the region. While in the 80s and 90s, the idea of being anti-imperialist or uh, you know, vilifying the United States did find popularity among young people. Uh, if you look at those under 30 today, they have a radically different approach to you know, the way they perceive the West, the way they perceive, uh, 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 you know, Europe and the United States. People are not fundamentally anti-American uh, in many parts of the Middle East uh, like they were uh, in the 80s and the 90s. And you can see this in the way that young Shia Arabs are responding uh, uh, to the Iranian regime. Uh, in Lebanon, uh, you know, it was unprecedented that during the protests, so many young Shias called out Hassan Nasrallah by name and Khamenei by name. Uh, that's uh, that's something that was totally uh, off limits only a few years ago. Uh, in Babel in Iraq, they were they were burning the the photos of uh, Ayatollah Ali Khamenei and uh, the photos of of Qasem Soleimani. So you know the incompatibility of this you know backwards reactionary ideology that is both Sunni and Shia by the way, Muslim Brotherhood uh, ideology, which is fundamentally anti-imperialist, anti-Western. Uh, you know, does intersect a lot with the ideology that underpins the Iranian regime. Uh, that ideology uh, is is uh, becoming ever more difficult to sell to young people. So time is on the side of the other model, the model that utilizes the energy of young people to crack down on these Islamist forces. Now, what the timeline looks like is a matter of a large debate, debate perhaps. Yeah, and the last part of your answer also reminds me a bit about the earlier question relating to the press, which is people have a hard time looking forward. They spend a lot of time looking backwards, and uh, they fail to understand that we are in uh, we're in a dramatically different forward-looking society throughout the Middle East. The young people ha- uh, really have a, a promising life ahead of them that's so different than uh, generations past. Just touching on the JCPOA for a minute, I spend a lot of time in the media speaking about how the U.S. should stop negotiating through Europe. We're not even um, able to negotiate directly and instead gather together our Middle Eastern allies who are mostly directly affected, uh, not just by the terror threat, but people also forget the other uh, point there, which you mentioned, which are the proxies, the proxies that are fomenting terrorism coming from Yemen to attack Saudi Arabia, the UAE, Hezbollah, Hamas, and others. Am I wrong, or do you think that the U.S. should, do you agree that the U.S. should partner with its Middle Eastern allies in dealing with the Iranian threat, the whole threat, not just the nuclear threat? I mean, I, th- I think that makes sense. I think involving, um, uh, you know, those countries that constitute the foundation of the American security order in the Middle East in, in such negotiations is important. And, and, and that's, that is one of the grievances that America's partners in the region did have uh, and 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 you know communicated to the Americans uh, about the process of of uh, the JCPOA. Um, it's important to note that you know the P five plus one. None of those countries are within the range of Iran's ballistic missiles. Not one of them. 
and all the countries that are U.S. partners in the region that are within range of, of uh, Iran's ballistic missiles weren't involved in the 2015 JCPOA. And it seems to me that their involvement in these current negotiations is also marginal. Um, now it's worth noting that that the negotiations have stalled um, and, and uh, there seems to be a gridlock. Uh, it remains to be seen what will happen. I mean, the anxiety that people have in the region is that if $150 billion is uh, transferred to uh, the Iranian regime and to the IRGC, uh, that will be used uh, in the same way that funds were used in 2015, which is cultivating proxies and prolonging the endless wars that the Iranian regime uh, 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 involves itself uh, in, um, uh, in the region. Um, and that's a disaster for people across the region. The idea of, of containing Iran, uh, of, of limiting Iran's ability to prosecute its regional expansion uh, is an important one. You know, many people in the United States measure the efficacy of sanctions solely on their ability uh, to get Iran on the table to sign a deal. Sanctions also serve another purpose. Sanctions also limit, you know, uh, a belligerent actor's uh, uh, ability to 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 navigate and to 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 implement their strategy. The, the Iranians, at the end of the day, need U.S. dollars in cash in order to pay, uh, you know, these these militias that they've cultivated. All uh, might I add, under the quote unquote reformist government of Rouhani and Jawad Darif. You know, that's another sort of myth that we hear in Washington, which is that there is reform reformist people and hardline people in Iran and that we should side with the reformist people. Ahmadinejad was billed as being a hardliner. But if you want to look at his track record, I mean, the, the regional expansion and the cultivation of proxies and the terror happened much more under Rouhani and uh, Jawad Tarif than it did under Ahmadinejad. So you mentioned Israel in one of your answers, and I want to touch upon Israel. It's a country near and dear to my heart. Not a week goes by where I don't get dozens of questions, you know, when is Saudi Arabia signing the Abraham Accords? And my answer generally is Saudi Arabia is a much different country than the UAE and Bahrain and even Morocco uh, for lots of reasons. And what I would say is we should applaud Saudi Arabia with every step they take, uh, whether it was the flyover rights that they recently granted, the flyover rights that they granted back at the time of the Abraham Accords, and rather than focus on when, 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 we give Saudi the time and the space to do it in their own time. Uh, I think, personally, it's inevitable, but we can't predict when it's going to be. Uh, but rather than ask the question of uh, what's the deadline, just uh, watch. Watch Saudi Arabia do the many things in Vision 2030, which are incredibly exciting, which their population is so excited about. And uh, slowly but surely, hopefully, Saudi heads in the right direction. How would you answer the question that I keep getting? Uh, would you answer it the same or different? I mean, Saudi Arabia has been very clear that there has to be a lasting uh, and 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 um, you know robust uh, uh, peace to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict before over the, the uh, diplomatic relations occur, uh, or at least the process, maybe. Um, now, as you mentioned, I mean, it's important to note that times have changed. You know. Uh, I imagine that if you were to walk into a meeting in, in Riyadh uh, on national security, Israel wouldn't be in the top 10 list of people that people in Riyadh are worried about. And I think the same would apply in Israel, right? I don't think the national security establishment in Israel today is uh, worried about uh, Saudi Arabia. So, so, so you know, um, 
these countries no longer uh, consider each other uh, adversaries. Uh, Prince Mohammed has even mentioned in an interview that you know there's a lot of benefit, potential benefit that can come from normalization of Israel. Uh, but there is a commitment to to uh, uh, you know solving uh, the Palestinian-Israeli crisis, uh, and you know if that takes time, then, then so be it, I guess. Let's talk about Vision 2030 for for the last question. So you know I had the privilege of hearing directly from the Crown Prince about the vision over the countless hours when I was in the White House, and it was really breathtaking. You sort of wonder wow, is this real? Is he going to really do this? Is he going to be able to pull it off? And here we are, 2022. And when I go back to the kingdom and I see some of these projects, I, I went to see Al-Ula and I went to see Duria. Uh, I have not been back to Niam yet, but I spoke to the CEO of Niam. There's a lot going on. And then people, else, to me, seem very, very hopeful and excited about this future. What does the average Saudi of your generation feel about these projects in Vision 2030? I mean, people under 30 in Saudi Arabia, and particularly women under 30, are the biggest uh, uh, supporters of, uh, of, of all the changes that are happening under Vision 2030. You know, I, 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 110,000 young people have received hospitality training over the past couple of years in Saudi Arabia, and now they're working at hotels, you would see them. Uh, they are working in the food and beverage uh, uh, industry. Um, these jobs are new jobs uh, that that uh, uh, people are enjoying. If you're a, a young Saudi woman in Riyadh, you know, overnight more or less, uh, you now have the freedom to choose your major without going back to your guardian. You have uh, the right to choose your your work. You have the right to travel. All of these limitations that existed in the past under the guardianship system have been overturned. So, so life fundamentally changed for you if you're a Saudi woman. And, and I think that's one of the reasons that we see such widespread support for all of these um, uh, reforms that are happening in the country. You know, it's, uh, it's interesting you mentioned that because on this recent trip, I noticed many women driving, which, of course, I didn't see in 2017 on my first trip or even later trips. And uh, women in meetings with the same uh, numbers and power and voice in whether it was a business meeting, a government meeting. So again, to your point of people misunderstand the region, I really believe they don't understand today's Saudi Arabia and where they're going. What's your message to my listeners about Saudi Arabia? We've covered a lot of topics, but if you had to make uh, one key point to my listeners about today's Saudi Arabia, what would it be? I would say visit Saudi Arabia. I mean, these changes are real. Um, as a rule, uh, people have had experiences very similar to yours. I, I, I'm yet to meet somebody who had a negative view of Saudi Arabia, who visited it, and then came out with an even more negative view of Saudi Arabia. You know, 100% of people that I've met who visited Saudi Arabia sort of had a, a rude awakening uh, and, and um, realized that, that the country on the ground that they saw is one that is uh, very different from the one that's described uh, by Saudi Arabia's detractors, political or otherwise, in the West. Mohammed al Yahya, thank you. Thank you so much for sharing your insight, uh, your life experience, and uh, information about today's Saudi Arabia. Thank you very much. Very glad that Mohammed al Yahya joined me today. I thought his comments about the press and the media coverage of Saudi Arabia, the backwards-looking coverage, the anti-Saudi coverage versus the forward-looking coverage, and I would argue the honest-looking coverage, uh, was fascinating. It actually does remind me about Israel. 
uh, and the coverage that it gets, as well as a lot of other countries in the Middle East. I think they are misunderstood. Let me know what you think. And do remember, if you're interested in the Middle East, whether it's Saudi Arabia, Israel, the United Arab Emirates, Qatar, or any of the other countries there, Israeli-Palestinian peace effort, and anything else surrounding the Middle East, please do pick up my new book, In the Path of Abraham. It is out. You can go to Amazon and search Jason Greenblatt or In the Path of Abraham, or go to www.inthepathofabraham.com. Keep listening. Love having you here. And again, I'm Jason Greenblatt. This is The Diplomat, brought to you by Newsweek. Look around. You can find cars like these on AutoTrader, like that car riding your tail. Or if you're tailgating right now, all those cars doubling as kitchens and living rooms are on Auto Trader too. Are you working out and listening to this ad at the same time? Well, multitasking pro, cars like the ones in the gym parking lot are for sale on Auto Trader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on Auto Trader. Just you wait. Auto Trader.